with you. Let me ask you a question. If you, uh, let me just ask this way. What is the most defining moment of your life? If you're a follower of Christ, that's obviously when you came to Christ. So let's take that one off the table. Uh, what is the second most defining moment of your life, okay, next to coming to Christ? Think about that. The defining moment, it changed everything. You can, you can just back your life out to that moment, and you are who you are today because of that moment. My defining moment came on May 20th, 1989, and it happened in a home in Novato, California, a home in a country club. I was on a, working for a missions agency called Campus Crusade for Christ, or called Crew now, and I was going to a supporter's house. Little did I know that at the supporter's house was a recent college graduate from South Carolina, of all places, named Ann Griffith. And uh, when I knocked on the door, the door opened, and Ann opened the door and put out her hand and said, Hi, I'm Ann Griffith. Uh, And I said, I'm Gary Gadini. It's nice to meet you. Uh, She stayed silent the whole meal that we had, but we were walking out from the meal, and as we were walking to the car, I was leaving the next day to go to Fort Collins, Colorado, and I said, Are you free tomorrow morning for breakfast? And she said, I am. And so we had breakfast. It changed everything. That dinner and that breakfast changed everything because without that breakfast, there'd be no letters that summer. And without the letters, there'd be no phone calls at the end of the summer. Without the phone calls, there'd be no call from Ann, hey, my friend and I are road tripping to L.A. We'd like to see you. Can we stop in and see you? Without that experience, there'd be no phone call back up, hey, would you come down for another weekend so we can get to know each other better? And without that, there'd be no relationship and no marriage. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for that May 20th, 1989 support appointment at that house in Novato. And I certainly wouldn't be dressed like this because Anne approves everything I wear. <laughs> I'd be wearing parachute pants or something like that. <laughs> True story. Uh, and we wouldn't have five kids, everything. Here's the deal. I had no clue on May 20th driving to that support appointment I was driving into the most defining moment of my life. My life. I had no clue. Now, if you knew you were hours away from your life's defining moment, what would you do if you were hours away? How would you prepare? What would go through your mind? What would you pray? Would you pray? What would you pray about? That's exactly what we're stepping into with Jesus. Not only his life's defining moment, but history's defining moment. He knows that. Literally, the weight of the world is on him. And God sovereignly gives us this glimpse into the inner part, the truest part of who Jesus was. Truly, who you really are is who you are on your knees before God. You can say you believe a lot of things. You can talk about how much you read your Bible and how much church you go to. But who you truly are and what you truly believe is dictated by how often and the content of your prayer life. Who you are before God, that's who you are and nothing else. And we get that glimpse into Jesus. It's amazing. We get this glimpse that even the disciples didn't fully get. Look in John 17:1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, here comes the term, the hour has come. It's the seventh time now in the book of John we come across that term. Remember in the months ago in the fall, we came across that term in John 2 for the first time? Jesus' mom said, hey, turn the water into wine. He said, why are you asking me to do this? My hour has not yet come. He's been all about the hour. It's it's his term for the atonement, when he'd hang on the cross and atone for the sins of the world. And he's like, it's here. 
history's most defining moment is hours away. Is Jesus freaking out? No. Is Jesus running away? No. He's praying. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. He's just about done. In John 18, look at John 18, 1. When he finishes his prayer, he's going to go out a gate in Jerusalem, go down the Kidron Valley, and enter into the Garden of Gethsemane where he knows he's going to get arrested. And what we see in John 17 is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in all of Scripture. We get a glimpse into his heart, into his, in his, into his inner world. And how it breaks down is he starts praying for himself, then he prays for his disciples, and finally he prays for us. He prays for you. He prays for me. And Romans, if you're taking notes, 834, he's still praying for you. He's still praying for me. You want to know what Jesus is doing right now? Romans 8, 34 tells us. He's at the right hand. God doesn't have a hand. It's the place of authority. He puts it in human language so we can understand it. He's at the right hand of the Father praying for us. As you're battling what I'm talking about, you need to know you're not in this thing alone. Jesus is praying for you. What Janet said is so true. He's praying you get this. He's praying you become more like Christ. He wants you to win as a human. That's his goal for you and me, to be the most human humans we can be. Because sin dehumanizes us. It does. It erodes humanity. Jesus rehumanizes us. It's his goal for all of us. So what did he pray for? Let's look at these these verses and ponder how we get to live into being the answer to Jesus' prayers. It blows my mind. We pray over hundreds of prayer cards every week. It is our privilege to shepherd and serve the church by doing this. But I've been challenged this week to do a prayer audit of my life and ask, am I praying what Jesus is praying for me? Am I aligning with how Jesus is aligning? Isn't that the goal of life, right? To become like him? Okay, so let's look what he prayed for. Grab your message notes. Are you ready? No, come on. Come on, everybody. Hey, this is my third time doing this, okay? Are you ready? Okay, good. Amen. So grab your message notes. John 17, open your phones, look at it in there, or your Bibles. Here we go. Here's the first thing he prayed. He prayed we'd be marked by joy. He prayed we'd be marked by joy. Look at verse 13. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they, that would be us, may have the full measure of my joy. Now he's going to quantify it and qualify it. Because we have this way as humans to take Jesus' words Bible words and redefine them to fit into our lives to make us more comfortable. You can't do that. There's no life in that. So Jesus quantifies it and qualifies it. Okay, you want joy? How much joy? The full measure. Okay, there's the quantity. Here's the quality of my joy, not worldly joy, my joy within them. Now, let me ask you a question. With all our technology, knowledge, affluence, why are we the most miserable culture that's lived on the planet? And I have this all footnoted, so if you question these stats, come see me. Why is the United States at an all-time low in regards to satisfaction and happiness levels if we're so advanced as a culture? Why does America rank 15th in regards to the happiest countries in the world? Everyone's pursuing happiness. Few are finding it. The secret is this, the joy that Jesus is praying for is not found in our homes, in our iPhones, in all of its apps, and I'm not against those, in our uh, social media posts, in how many friends we have in social media. It's, found, it's not found in our achievements. 
At best, what our world offers is pleasure that's temporary. There's nothing wrong with that. But to base your joy on that, that's not what Jesus prayed for. I want to be very clear. In her book, it's a great book, Leslie Vernick wrote a book called, Lord, I Just Want to Be Happy. She says this, don't get me wrong. A good marriage, adequate financial resources, even a clean home, well-behaved children, do bring some measure of happiness. However, temporal blessings, as wonderful as they may be, are only a taste of the real thing. They cannot sustain inner happiness any more than eating, now she's going to speak my language, eating a scrumptious meal keeps tomorrow's hunger at bay. What I'm realizing in my life is my desire for order, my desire for happiness, my desire for, uh, and i got great kids, but kids that uh, are aligned and, and reconciled and all that, it's really, uh, it's, a, it's a small temporary fix of my deeper hunger for eternity and the kingdom that's coming. My desire for color, and we got tons of color in the walls in our house, and my, my yard being neat and tons of plants in my yards, it's a temporary fix that shows an inner desire for the coming kingdom. See, there's a worldly joy that's, not, that's only found in Jesus and not found in circumstances. That's what he's praying for. And I've learned in my life that you can live with deep grief and deep joy at the same time. This is not... Uh, tethered to our circumstances being all in control and everything being happy. The true source of joy, what Jesus is praying for, and, and he talked about it in John 15. You know what this prayer is? For John 15 and 16, 14, 15, 16, he's been feeding the seed to his disciples. You know what he's doing now through prayer? Watering the seed. Watering the seed in prayer to see that it grows. And Jesus is in John 15 said, remain in me, right? And now he's saying, here's the fruit of that, an otherworldly joy. So I want you to ponder this. Followers of Christ, Jesus is praying that you would have joy. Let me ask you this question. Write these two letters, J-Q. J-Q, how's your joy quotient these days? Sit in that. How tethered is it to your circumstances? To being in control or things being in control? Sometimes God will allow circumstances to get out of control to show you you need to be tethered to him for your joy. Those are called trials, right? Well, he didn't stop there. He prayed that we would be joyful, but then he prayed for a second thing. And these next two things are critical for us as a church, especially right now. Jesus prayed, secondly, page two of your message notes, that we would be on mission, That we would live on mission. You know what he prayed for? That his followers would be joyful missionaries. Joyful missionaries. That's what he wants for everybody, right? We have a big mission budget. We just took God's Heart for the World offering, right? Uh, Very important. But the reality is our mission, missionaries aren't the people we support. uh, And we support a town. We gave a million dollars almost last year to missions. You're the missionaries. I'm the missionaries. If you call yourself a follower of Christ, you need to know Jesus calls you a missionary, a joyful missionary. Look what he says here. Don't look yet because this is such a defining, critical passage for me personally. Now, traditionally, let me ask this before we look. When I say the word missionary, just don't answer. It's rhetorical. What comes to mind? Traditionally, we think of people sent across the ocean to tribes with bizarre and eccentric people who don't know Christ. Bizarre practices, eccentricities, right? And my answer, 
We have bizarre and eccentric people who don't know Christ right here on the peninsula, right? As a matter of fact, we call them the Stanford Band, right? <laughs> Amen? They live in Berkeley too. I'm an equal opportunity offender today. Right? There's no one living in huts in remote places of the world more strange than the Stanford Band. The reality is, men and women, this is so critical to PCC, and just as we send missionaries around the world, uh, we live in one of the most unchurched regions of the country. Uh, San Francisco, the most unchurched city in America. That's not just passive towards followers of Christ. They are hostile in the city towards followers of Christ. My sister and brother-in-law co-pastor a church in the city. It is brutal. They drool when they hear about uh, the favor we have in our city. Last Wednesday night, I sat in a meeting with our mayor, our city council, members of our city council, members of our school board, and, and I actually had favor in that setting. My brother-in-law would drool over that. Um, the reality is we support missionaries, many of our missionaries, serve in places more churched than the peninsula. We are in a mission field. So when I say joyful missionaries, don't roll your eyes. I didn't see anyone roll your eyes. Don't think, oh, he's not talking about me. Don't do what Jesus prayed against and redefine language so you can be comfortable with your life. Live into Jesus' definition for your life. He sees you and prays and wants you, if you're a Christian, to be a joyful missionary. Am I being clear? Okay. For three of you, I'm being clear. Let's look at verse 14. Verse 14, look at this. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. And this is about you. And I would encourage you, take the word uh, they out, cross it out in your Bible, and write your name in it. For Gary is not of the world any more than I am of the world. What you're going to see in this prayer is Jesus paralleling his life with your life. Because the most, and that's why the most uh, common moniker in the New Testament for Christians, it's not Christian. The word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. Twice it's used as a derogatory term from an outside group towards the people of Christ. Jesus never, never wanted you to be known as a Christian. The most common term is in Christ. In Christ. Your life is hid in Christ. So it makes sense that in this prayer, he's going to parallel your life with his and use words like just as, in the same way, because he wants how he lived to be how you live. He wants to live through you, right? So he says, uh, I've given them your word. The world has hated them because they're not of the world any more than I'm of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. And there's the tension that I'm going to raise that we live in. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. Here's the prayer. Sanctify, big word. It means make holy. It means make them like me. Give them my character. Sanctify. This is Jesus' goal for you. You're here and you don't know if you you want to be a Christian. Here's the end goal of what it means to follow Christ, to be like Christ. Sanctify them by the truth. That's how we get to be like Christ. I'll say it again. I'll say it every Sunday if I need to to remind me. I'm not going to wake up one day on my 53rd birthday. It's a few years out, right? And be holy when the whammy comes on me at 53. I'm going to be holy at 53 because at 50 and 51, I'm opening the word, soaking in the word, and letting the word do its work in my life. You're not going to wake up one day and be the person God wants you to be just magically. It doesn't happen that way. That's heaven. 
on earth, we have to fight and struggle and get to the Word and soak in the Word and let the Word soak in us and saturate through us. Sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. And here it is. As you sent me into the world, that parallelism, I'm sending them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself. They too may be truly sanctified. So Jesus came to earth as a missionary. You knew that, right? Forty times, Gospel of John, the word sent is used for Jesus. I was sent. says it 40 times. Just to be clear, he came as a missionary. He came to earth like a good missionary. He learned the culture like good missionaries do. He learned the language like good missionaries do. He learned the customs. He got to know the people. He celebrated their holidays. That's what good missionaries do. He made friends. He went to foreign cultures like Samaria, all with the express purpose of restoring broken humanity. Now, ultimately, we'll see in the coming weeks, his mission is to suffer and die and rise from the dead in order to give us salvation. Does anyone doubt why Jesus came to earth? Okay, we're all clear on that, right? Now, look at verse 18. Jesus says, as I was sent, you and I have been sent. If we call ourselves Christians, we're missionaries. So the question is not, are you a missionary? The question is, what kind of missionary are you? I get the privilege of going to our mission field on a pretty regular basis. I remember going to one of our mission fields and uh, seeing a a person from another mission. It wasn't one that we support. And uh, all this guy did was slept. I'm like, you know, we went out to to be with the people. I'm like, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to take a nap. Like, it's 10 in the morning. What are you taking a nap for? What are you going to do later today? Well, I'm going to go tend to my garden. And then I'm going to go back and take a nap. And then I'm going to read some books. And then I've downloaded some great movies. I'm going to watch some movies. I'm like, oh, my gosh. What do you put in your prayer letters? Like, what are you doing with the mission God's given you? Why are you on this foreign field? You could take a nap anywhere. This was beyond rest. This was laziness. Look at Acts 17, 26. Look at this. Lest you think you're not a missionary. From one man, he made all the nations, that being God, that they should inhabit the whole earth. We've done a pretty good job of doing that. And he marked out, here it is, their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. In other words, God was one step ahead of you and putting you at this time, at this place right here. Your life is not an accident. When were you born? God chose when you'd be born. Where do you live? God chose where you would live. Who is that neighbor next to you? God chose that. Who you work with? God chose that. What school did you attend? God chose that. The mission of this church? God chose that. We are missionaries sent by God. Tomorrow morning, you should open the door of your place of employment and go, oh man, it's your lucky day. I have been sent here from the God of the universe to bless this place. Through my hard work, as a good missionary should, through my knowing the customs, through my work ethic, letting the aroma of Christ permeate through me. So in 17 and 18, Jesus prayed for two things, that we'd be set apart, holy, for a special purpose, that we wouldn't be ordinary, and that we'd be sent. And we have to hold those two in tension. We're set apart and we're sent. We're set apart and we're sent. Usually we we lean towards one or the other. I remember coming to Christ uh, my freshman year in college, and I was in a fraternity. Fraternities are not known for holy things. Um, and they're actually, it's a pseudo-church, really. It's everything that the church offers without Jesus, right? There's community, there's mission. Uh, fraternities are great places in that sense. But they break Ten Commandments. That's why they're not good. 
And uh, as I grew in Christ, I realized a few months into it, like, oh, you know what? It wasn't that like, oh, I can't do that anymore. It was like, God's changing my heart. I don't want to engage in destructive behavior. So I went to my youth pastor and I said, I got to quit the fraternity. And he goes, okay, okay, let's talk about this. He said, uh, are you initiated? Yeah, I'm full-fledged. I'm in. Like, I'm not a pledge anymore. He said, let me ask you this question. You may have to quit, but who's going to reach those guys if you quit? I thought about that. And he goes, how many guys in your house? I'm like, 100. He goes, okay, what if we divide them by seven, pray for one-seventh of your house every day, and then I'll hold you accountable. You can't do certain things anymore, right? That'll erode your witness for Christ. And let's see what God does. Over the course of four years, and that strategy alone, and guys came in and out of the fraternity, but by my senior year, every one of those hundred guys got a chance to say yes or no to the good news that Jesus offers. About ten guys today in that fraternity came to Christ and are serving God vocationally somewhere around the world. Why? Because I held intention being set apart and being sent. Jesus was set apart, right? on earth for a specific mission. So he did things differently while he was in the world. He was distinct from the world. He did friendship differently. Jesus did alcohol differently. Jesus did parties differently. He went to parties. He drank alcohol. And I'm not proposing anything here. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But what I'm saying is he did it differently because he was a good missionary engaged in the culture. He did anger differently, power differently, managing his sexuality differently. Jesus had great friends that were girls, but they were never sexual objects to him. He managed his sexuality completely differently than the world. He did compassion differently, justice differently, religion completely different than the world's standards. He was set apart, but he was also sent, right? He loved the world. He loved people. He served people. He advocated for people. He was called a friend of sinners by the religious people. What I find in in my life is I always live in the tension between blending in and barricading. Blending in and barricading. There are Christians who are barricade Christians. It's the big bad world, so I'm going to have my own Christian music. I'm going to wear my own Christian t-shirts. I'm going to use my own Christian shoelaces and eat off Christian plates and Christian this and Christian that. We are going to barricade ourselves in the big bad world. You're not a missionary. You're not an answer to Jesus' prayer. There are others who are all about blending in. I'm going to party with them. I'm going to do this. I'm down. I'm going to cross boundaries all the time. And if I were to gather your friend group and say, hey, let me ask you a question. That guy's a follower. That girl's a follower of Christ. What's different about them? They would say, nothing. They party like I party. They swear like I swear. They cheat like I cheat. There's nothing different. I'm not here to offend anyone. Today I want to offend everyone. (laughs) Because we all live in that tension. It's a tension to be managed. It's not either or, but Jesus says if you're going to be a missionary, you're going to be sent and you're going to be sanctified. You're going to go to the middle of the world and you're going to do it differently in my strength and my power. That's what he prayed for. And that's who we are as a church. So if you think, oh my gosh, why is this church so involved in the public schools? Because we believe God loves every child in the public schools and every teacher and every parent. And so we're going to serve our way into the hearts of the public schools. And I can go on and on, but I don't have the time. Okay, ponder, how is your MQ? Just write the initials, MQ. How's your missionary quotient? The next thing he prayed for, Jesus prayed we'd be marked by unity. Unity. Uh, Every 
community I've been involved in that's Christ-centered, this has always been a challenge. Always. Whether it's a mission trip, a family, uh, a church, unity is always a challenge. And reading these four verses, verse 20 to 23, when Jesus lays out really what's on the line, I understand. Because if I was Satan, and if unity really mattered to the heart of God and to the mission of God's people like it does how Jesus prayed, I'd go after unity. It would be my number one place of assault for the community of Christ. Look what he says. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray that those who will believe in me through their message, that's us, that they'll be one. And here comes a parallel. What do you mean by one, Jesus? I mean, it's one that I, I, I don't like them, uh, but I love them. Uh, it's one that I just see them, but I don't have to be a friend of them. I can still be bitter and gossip around them. No, no, no. Jesus says, okay, just to be clear, just as you and I are one, just as you're in me and I am in you, does anyone doubt the unity of the Trinity? That's our bar as followers of Christ. That's what Jesus is praying. Until we attain that, we fight for unity. May they also be in us so that, now look at this, so that the world may believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. There it is again. I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Now here's what's on the line. You think it's just about you and, and not liking that person across the pew or across the, the street. No, no. Look what's on the line. Then the world will know that you sent me. I mean, I'm dying for a silver bullet when it comes to our mission and those 95% unchurched people. I'm dying to find out how to engage them and draw them to Christ. Jesus said, oh, fight for unity. You have a unified body? The world will know then that, that you sent me and you love them even as you've loved me. Oh, look, he's not talking about uniformity at all. So no wonder at PCC, the church of four different services, Five different generations. No wonder that unity be our biggest challenge as a church. And key to unity is not to focus on unity. Dress this way. That's uniformity. Have music this way. That's uniformity. Preach this way. That's uniformity. The key to unity is to center on Jesus and center on his mission. That's when we'll be unified. Uh, I love my family, obviously. We have five kids. But we endeavor not to have a kid-focused home not to have a marriage-focused home. The only way we're going to have unity in our marriage is to have a Christ-centered marriage. The only way we're going to have unity in our home is to have a Christ-centered home. Put anything else in the center, even unity, and you're falling short of God's standard. When we focus on Christ and his mission, we are never more unified than when we're on mission doing Beautiful Day or something in our culture. And that's when the generations come together. So I am concerned about unity in the room, but have you ever intentionally thought, you know what, I'm going to go to a different service just for the sake of unity and just bless people for a Sunday. I'm going to go to 855, even though I don't like how they do the liturgy at 855, just to bless an older generation. I'm going to go to 905 to bless a younger generation. I'm going to stay at 11. Have you thought coming here, God, make me a conduit of your unity when I come to PCC? This is a worship service. This is not worship, serve us. This is a worship service. I'm going to serve you, Jesus, and that's going to be my worship on Sunday. That's what Jesus is praying for. And until we attain that unity, we fall short. But when we live into that, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And we're doing really, really well. 
really well as a church. But we have so far to go. And I just want to say parenthetically, I'm seeing across the peninsula, like never before in my 19 years of being here, a unity amongst the churches. Uh, There are gatherings I'm in where lead pastors and church staff are talking about how do we link arms? How do we lower denominational walls? How do we plant churches together instead of having a covenant church? I don't care if it's covenant, Presbyterian, whatever. Just let it be a Jesus church and let's put our funds together and do it. Because what this peninsula needs is more Jesus churches. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Amen. Okay, quick clapping. I don't have time. So um, just write write down these two letters, UQ. UQ. How's your unity quotient? Like out there, like you'll be testing your IQ, your EQ. That matters in here too. Not the IQ, but your EQ. I care more about what Jesus cares about, your UQ, your MQ, your JQ. The last thing he prayed for is this, and I just got to read it. And frankly, if you want to pray for me, this is the one. This is the one that's hardest for me to understand. The love of the Father uh, for a son. I know it up here, uh, but I am asking God to really make it down here. Father, verse 24, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Can, can I just pause for a second and invite you today to live in that, just sit in that? That's the heart of Jesus saying, I want so badly for you to be with me in eternity. I want so badly to, to, to have forever together to never look at our watches, to never worry about the next appointment, to never have to say goodbye. The heart of Jesus is to have you forever. And the only reason you're not in eternity right now is because of those first three things we talked about. There's a mission to be had that we have to live into because Jesus doesn't want you only. He wants everyone out there to experience new life in him. But just sit in that. Like when I sit in that and feel Jesus' heart, it, it starts to move from here down here. That's where the healing starts. To see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know you sent me. I've made you uh, known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them. How do we understand God's love? Jesus reveals it. That's why the number one prayer for Ann and I every night Reveal yourself to our daughters. The only way our girls will know about the heart of the Father is if the Father reveals it. Reveal yourself to us. We pray that more than anything. In order to love you have for me, there's a parallelism. Do you ever doubt God the Father's love for God the Son? Jesus is saying, that's what I'm praying for you. To understand that same love. So, the last two letters I want you to write, and then we'll close this in prayer. L-Q. How's your love quotient? How is it understanding that you are the beloved? And that belovedness is not tethered to your performance, your blow it, uh, how many things you confess, how much you fall short. Jesus loves you if you're in Christ. The Father loves you not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus did. The Father loves you not based on your works, but based on Jesus' works. So who is Jesus? Jesus is your intercessor. Jesus is praying for you right now at the right hand of the Father. And I invite you to join me in endeavoring to live into being the answer to his prayers.
and praying along with him for this. Father, thank you for this time as we now gather around the tables for communion. I can't think of a better Sunday to have communion after just looking at this. God, I pray that you would bring about joy, otherworldly joy in our lives. I pray that you bring about a perspective that we are sent by you. I pray that you would bring about in our lives, Lord, a unity that we've never had before because we're so focused on you. And then I pray, Lord, that we would, like never before, understand your love, even as we come to this table, where you didn't want us to understand but taste it. We would be marked as the beloved. We love you. Thanks for this church. Thank you for your faithfulness over the decades. May it continue as we keep you at the center of all that we are. We pray this in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. Listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We're located at 3560 Farm Hill Boulevard in Redwood City, California. You can reach us online at www.peninsulacovenant.com.